You take your Bibles and turn them to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. John 18. As the year wears on, and I scan the, the news on the internet and the chatter on the radio, I'm beginning to hear more and more about the midterm elections coming up in November. I guess it's going to be a pretty big deal, right? Uh, as the, the balance in the, in the House and in the Senate is on the line, and probably many of you are going to uh, be participating by casting your vote. And I hope that you are grateful for the wonderful privilege we all have to be able to choose our leaders and affect the direction of our country. Not everyone enjoys that privilege, but because we do, uh, and, and have since the beginning of this nation, uh, the notion of absolute kings, absolute rulers, absolute monarchs, we, that notion is something that is very strange to us and not immediately relevant to us. But as we look at the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 18 and moving on into chapter 19, we are confronted head-on with the concept of king and kingdom, and, and we're confronted with this in such a way that we cannot avoid it. Everyone in our story today is forced to deal with the matter of kingship. And everybody reading this story, you and me, are forced to deal with it. John doesn't give us the option of just setting it aside and discarding it. In John chapter 20, verse 31, the Apostle John tells us the whole purpose for writing this book. He says the purpose of it is that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, that word Christ has royal overtones. It is a royal title. It means anointed one. In the Old Testament, the king of the Jews was called the anointed one, Mashiach, Messiah. And John wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, is the Mashiach, is the royal king. And in our text today, we all have to make a decision on what we're going to do about Jesus' claims to kingship. Are we going to receive and embrace his kingship, or are we going to persist in rebellion against the king and instead create a a rival kingdom that stands in opposition to his? That's the choice that faces the uh, religious leaders in this story that we're about to read. That's the choice that faces uh, the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, and that is the choice that is before you this morning. And so, as we prepare to read our text today, let's go ahead and rise in honor of King Jesus. We stand at Harbin's Church as we read the sermon text to remind us that what I am about to read to you is a message that comes directly from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the King speaks, we listen. John chapter 18 starting at verse 28. The king says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to bring outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, 
are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly King, we come before you this morning to hear your words and to hear your will. So, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would communicate accurately your word to us so that we may adequately understand the revealed revelation about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Father, help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, John 18 begins with Jesus being betrayed by one of his own disciples, Judas Iscariot. And so Jesus is bound, and he is arrested. And last week, we saw the Jewish authorities, headed up by a man named Annas, in the middle of the night, conducting an illegal trial, an unjust trial. They already have their minds made up. They're already determined to kill Jesus. Their power and their position is being threatened by Jesus, and they are ready to do away with Him once and for all. And as we saw last week, that while the purpose of the trial is to expose Jesus as guilty, really the tables are turned, and it becomes clear that Annas and his cronies are the guilty and corrupt ones, and Annas, in frustration, passes Jesus off. You can see in verse 24, it says, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, we saw in our Scripture reading a little earlier that Carrie read for us in the Gospel of Mark how Jesus was asked directly by Caiaphas if he is the Christ. And Jesus says, yes, I am the King. And what's more, he claims to be the divine King. And in Jewish law, it is blasphemy to claim divinity. The penalty is death. And so, so now Jesus' enemies can finally get rid of this man once and for all. They have heard with their own ears, it has come from the lips of Jesus, that He is divine. He is the King. They don't need, they don't, they don't need anything else now to pin on Him. They've got, they've got what they want. So, let's take a closer look now at our text, a closer look at what I see to be kingdoms in conflict. We see in our text today a clash of kingdoms, and we see uh, a challenge laid before you and laid before me of which kingdom we will ally ourselves with and which king we will ultimately serve. And the first kingdom that we meet in our text today is the kingdom of religious hypocrisy. 
the kingdom of religious hypocrisy. So it has been a long night for Jesus. John has kind of compressed the story in his gospel, but we know from reading other gospels that other things have been going on. It's been a very long night with beatings, uh, two mock trials, illegal trials, no rest, probably no food. And by now, it's probably about five or six in the morning. That's when Roman governors began to conduct their business for the day. And the Jewish leaders drag Jesus before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Look with me at verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Now, this notion of a Jew being religiously or ceremonially defiled just by entering the home of a Gentile is not part of the Old Testament law. It was part of extra-biblical Jewish law, but they were really careful to observe all of their little laws. They would do all kinds of, of, of little religious things to, to help them to earn favor with God. They would give alms to the poor. They would fast. They would stand in public and pray out loud to God. They would go to the synagogue to worship. They would memorize Scripture. They would keep all kinds of religious rules and regulations. And notice the irony here. They want to avoid religious defilement so that they could participate in the Passover meal. in this religious festival. All the while, they are plotting and scheming to brutally murder the one whom the Passover pointed to. It's hypocrisy of the highest order. By the way, our word hypocrisy comes from a Greek word uh, used in the theater where a stage actor would hold a mask in front of his face. That's what hypocrisy is. It is a mask It gives the appearance of one thing while covering up what's underneath. And the hypocritical religious leaders had constructed a kingdom in their hearts and in their heads that they were quite comfortable living in, a kingdom where you could look good on the outside, you could wear a really pretty mask while neglecting the sin in your own hearts. And Jesus comes along, and He completely threatens their comfortable little kingdom, and He begins ripping off their masks. He's been doing it now for three years in His ministry. Consider how Jesus' most forceful and powerful rebukes and warnings were not for drunks or thieves or prostitutes, but for the religious establishment. And so, Jesus will say things like, Uh, You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say unto you that if a man looks at a woman lustfully, he's already committed adultery in his heart. Or Jesus says things like, uh, you've said that, you've heard it said that you shall not murder, but I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, you are in danger of hell. Jesus is saying, don't pat yourself on the back saying, oh, I have never killed anyone, so I'm great. Don't get, let your ego get puffed up by saying, oh, well, I have never been to bed with someone else's spouse, so that means I'm awesome, I'm pure. God's not impressed by you faking it. Jesus is interested not in your outward piety, He's concerned about what's in your heart. Turn with me a few books back to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 23, a few books to the left, <clears throat> Matthew 23. And we will see how Jesus really feels about religious hypocrisy. 
and, and these religious leaders in particular. Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. In other words, yes, you, you strive to keep certain elements of God's law, but don't simply be satisfied with outwardly keeping certain laws while tossing out other aspects of God's law. And especially don't be satisfied with the appearance of righteousness while neglecting what's going on in your heart. Look at verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness." So you also outward appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus is saying that your biggest problem and my biggest problem is not what we are doing outwardly. Instead, the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. And in our sinful, selfish hearts, our heart's desire is to construct a kingdom of self-righteousness where we can have the appearance of morality, where we can be impressive to others and have others think that we are awesome, all the while able to hold on to and cherish our favorite sins at the same time. that's, That's at the core of hypocrisy, isn't it? I can make myself feel good and righteous by doing a few things that look good and enjoy sin simultaneously. And so in that kind of kingdom, there is safety because people admire me and approve of me, and there is selfish, sinful pleasures. I can have the best of both worlds. And so, I can be in bondage to the sin of pride. But hey, I do my devotions every day, and and, and I haven't missed that in five years. I'm okay. I'm not that bad. Or, We can continually give ourselves over to to indulgence in any other kind of sin. You, You can fill in the blank with your weakness. We can indulge in that thing, and at the same time, we can serve in the church or teach a Bible study or engage in evangelism, and we don't need we don't need to deal with our sin. We can enjoy our sin, and our outward moral activity serves as a cloak that we hide behind to shield us from accountability. Now, friends, I'm not talking about somebody who is waging warfare against their sin, who's hating their sin, who's seeking change, even while sometimes stumbling. That's, that's the Christian life. I'm talking instead about people who have no intention or desire to give up their sin ever, while simultaneously enjoying the accolades and applauds of people impressed by their outward displays of morality. And then they're angered when somebody calls them out on their sin because now their little kingdom is threatened. Such people are not interested in the kingdom of God. They're interested in the kingdom of self. 
where they are at the center. It's all about my cravings, my appetites, my selfish desires. I can indulge in these things because God is not Lord. I am Lord. All the while enjoying glory and honor and approval from those around me because they are impressed with my outward display of goodness. And so what happens then is that I become the king, a little king over my little kingdom. We love being king. All the while not realizing that hypocritical compromise with sin is a dangerous path to take. Because as we compromise with hypocrisy, it becomes easier and easier and easier to live hypocritically, which then makes it easier and easier for us to open the door to greater and greater sin. If we can get away with this, we can get away with that. And we move down that path until one day we find ourselves conspiring against the Son of God, the King of kings, who threatens our kingship, and we seek to rid Him from our lives once and for all. These religious leaders who have appeared so impressive to the people who are taking great pains to obey this religious law or do this religious deed to fast and pray and memorize Scripture, these same men are now moving towards murdering the innocent Son of God, while at the same time making plans to sit down and enjoy a religious Passover feast with their families in just a few hours with smiles on their faces. If you compromise with hypocrisy, don't be shocked when one day you find yourself doing things that in the beginning you never thought that you would do. As the saying goes, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Indeed, while even the best of Christians can temporarily fall into hypocrisy, do not be deceived. The one who fully and finally devotes themselves to the road of hypocrisy will find themselves on the highway to hell. As Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Now, I can think of few statements in the Bible that are as bone-chilling as that. The desire uh, for the applause from people became so great that they could not believe in Jesus to be saved. And so, friends, hypocrisy and this desire for the approval of others in our hypocrisy is sending an endless parade of people smiling all the way to hell, not even aware of the eternal danger because they're so busy basking in the applause of one another. So these Jewish leaders won't go into Pilate's house for the sake of their religious rules. So Pilate accommodates this, and he comes out to them. Look at verse 29. Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? <clears throat> and notice the answer of the Jewish leaders. Verse 30, if this man were not doing evil, we would have not delivered him over to you. Now, what kind of answer is that? You think about that for a moment. That's utterly ridiculous. And really, they have to go to, a, to an answer like that because they really don't have anything on Jesus, at least nothing that Pilate would care about, at least not initially. And at this point, we see in Pilate 
a man who would really rather have nothing to do with Jesus. Uh, Verse 31 is the first sign of that, and we'll see this more throughout chapter 18 and into chapter 19. He wants to be rid of Jesus, which is why he hits the ball back into the court of the Jews. Verse 31, Pilate said said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Right? He doesn't want anything to do with this. You take it. You take care of him. You handle this. I'm done. But then verse 31, the game of tennis continues, and the Jews hit the ball back. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And that's true. The Romans took away the rights of the Jews to carry out capital punishment. And so, if someone is going to be formally executed, it can only be done through Roman sanction, through Roman means. And look what it says next. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, when John talks that way, what kind of death he's going to die, that's code for crucifixion. The Jews typically executed offenders by stoning. Crucifixion was strictly a Roman method, and John wants us to note here the sovereignty of God in all of this. All of this is moving towards the crucifixion to fulfill the prediction of Jesus. And so even when bound and captured, Jesus is still in control, and things are moving exactly according to God's plan. And here the Jewish leaders are ready for Jesus to be executed, and they want Pilate to quickly rubber stamp their decision so that they can move on with their lives and preserve their precious little kingdom of religious hypocrisy. Now, while some build their lives on the shaky ground of religious hypocrisy, there are others who build their lives on the unstable foundation of worldly concerns. So we have the kingdom of religious hypocrisy, but we also have the kingdom of worldly concern concerns that are strictly related to the here and now, to this world, this life, this ambition, this career, this wealth, these pleasures. They don't even pretend to be interested in God. They instead regard themselves as people of the real world. Pontius Pilate was a freed slave who had risen to influence through the support of the emperor's wife and mother, and he was now an important official and surely had big career ambitions bigger ambitions than simply being the governor of the, this province in Judea. And from what we can gather about Pilate from biblical and extra-biblical sources, Pilate was a cruel man, and he was also somewhat of a fearful man. And so here he is in a very difficult situation. On the one hand, he needs to keep a volatile Jewish population under Roman control. Otherwise, he would risk the the displeasure of his Roman overlords. On the other hand, if he presses down too hard on the Jews, guess what's going to happen? It could lead to a widespread outbreak of rebellion, which would also draw anger from Rome. And so to protect his position and future ambitions, Pilate is having to walk a tightrope. Now, the Gospel of Luke tells us that the Jews eventually did come up with a charge against Jesus that got Pilate's attention. In Luke 23, it says that they brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, that gets Pilate's attention. 
That is something that Pilate has absolutely no choice but to deal with and to investigate. If Jesus is undermining the authority of Caesar and declaring himself to be king instead of the emperor, then we've now crossed over from the realm of religious disputes to the seeds of insurrection against Rome. And if Pilate turns the other way, and if insurrection does happen, Rome is going to hold Pilate responsible. And we know that Rome is not a great boss. Caesar is not a kind employer. And if that happens, there goes Pilate's prestige, his career, maybe his head. And so now in this moment, Pilate's little kingdom of worldly ambition is threatened. And so, reluctantly, Pilate's got to take the case. And guess what? The ball is back in Pilate's court. Pilate doesn't want the ball, but here it is again. And what we see in Pilate is consistent with what we're going to see in the next several verses and into chapter 19 as well. Pilate is a man who wants to please people. He wants to be popular. He wants as much as possible to be in good standing with the people because he wants to be a successful governor because he wants to rise in power in the Roman world. And so as we think about Pilate, let's recognize that this is a man who is obviously thinking in this moment, what's going to be the easiest for me? What is the path of least resistance here? What's going to protect my career? What's going to be the most most useful for me in dealing with this Jesus problem? Whatever the price, whatever the cost may be, that's going to be the principle that drives my life. And at this point in the story, the easiest thing is for him just to shove the responsibility off on others instead of dealing with Jesus himself. And, And that, by the way, is a very common reaction to Jesus. Many people have this attitude, don't bother me with this Jesus stuff. You take him, you judge him by your own law. Why should there be this Jesus who is continually being preached about and who's constantly challenging me about my life and my priorities and my relationship to him? Can't we just quietly forget about him? Can't we just move on? But here's the thing, as with Pilate, So it is with every single one of us. The reality of Jesus will not go away. Pilate can't get out of this, and neither can you. Verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, in the Greek, the emphasis is on the word you, which suggests incredulity, perhaps even disgust. Are you? The king of the Jews, you you, the king? You see, Jesus stands unimpressive by worldly standards. He's got no army, no followers. Uh, He's meek, he's gentle. He's not not what somebody thinks of when they think king, for crying out loud. He even rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey, not on a war horse. Now, Pilate, as incredulous as he may be, He surely wants a straight answer in this moment. Nothing evasive, nothing cryptic. Are you a king? If Jesus says yes, Pilate can kill him and be done with it. If Jesus says no, Pilate can have the opportunity to release him. He's looking for a reply to get him off of the hook. In other words, Pilate now puts the ball in Jesus' court. But look at Jesus' answer. Verse 34, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you? about me. Now, why does Jesus answer this way? 
Well, on one level, Jesus could simply be saying, Pilate, do you have any evidence yourself about me, or did others put you up to this? But I think that there is something that's deeper going on here. Jesus never asks casual questions. He asks penetrating questions, questions that penetrate the heart. Jesus here is showing Pilate that he cannot blame anyone else or rely on anyone else's opinion. Pilate, what do you think? I know you've heard people say this about me and that about me, but never mind them. What do you think? It's much like earlier in Jesus' ministry when Jesus asked his disciples about his identity, and they say, well, some are saying this about you and some are saying something else about you. And then Jesus turns the spotlight away from the opinions of others and shines the penetrating light on his disciples, and he says, never mind what they say, who do you say that I am? And do you remember in that moment what the apostle Peter said? He said, you are the Christ. You are the King. In that moment, he had made a decision about Jesus' kingship. And now, Jesus turns to Pilate and essentially is challenging him. We all know what other people are saying, but Pilate, you've got to make up your mind for yourself. Who do you say that I am? Am I the king? Am I your king? And there Pilate stands again holding the ball that he keeps desperately trying to get rid of. And the more that he tries to evade dealing with Jesus, the more in his face Jesus is. And so Jesus, as he is so good at doing, again, turns the tables. Jesus came in as a prisoner to be cross-examined. But now Jesus turns that on his head. It's not Jesus standing before Pilate. It's now Pilate standing before Jesus, and Pilate is the one on the hot seat. The prisoner here is cross-examining the judge, and Pilate, sensing the tables are being turned, sensing the discomfort of him being interrogated when it should be the other way around, gets irritated and seeks to divert the penetrating gaze of Jesus elsewhere in verse 35. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? You can hear the anti-Semitic scorn in Pilate's response. I'm not a Jew. I don't know anything about any of this superstitious stuff, and neither do I care. I'm a man of the world, the real world, the Roman world. I've got no time for this nonsense, so let's just get on with this and tell me what you have done. Pilate's response is not unlike how many people respond to Jesus today. Evasion, irritation, anger. I'm not religious. That's not, my, that's not my thing. I'm just an ordinary guy. I'd rather not think about this. I've got real, real life, everyday, ordinary stuff to deal with. I've got bills to pay. I've got a job to go to. I've got mouths to feed. I've got no time for this Jesus stuff. Now, it's not that bills and jobs and mouths to feed are unimportant, But the kingdom of Christ ultimately must control and eclipse worldly concerns, not the other way around. And Jesus' claims to kingship means that he claims the right to rule your life. And therefore, you've got to make a decision about Jesus. And to not decide is to decide. There is no neutrality with Jesus. If you put Jesus off, you're being neutral. I mean, excuse me, you're not being neutral. 
You may think you're being neutral, but you're not. To, to, to not decide is to decide. In fact, to not decide is to decide that he's not worth your time and that he's not as important as he says he is. And so we are confronted with the kingdom of religious hypocrisy and the kingdom of worldly concern, but those are confronted ultimately by the kingdom of Christ. Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Literally in the Greek, my kingdom is out of this world. My kingdom has no zip code. My kingdom is totally unlike the kind of kingdoms that you have in mind, Pilate, and it's totally unlike the kind of kingdoms we today have in mind. You think about it, what are the things that you and I uh, associate with real power? Money, prestige, political influence, the applause of man. But Jesus' kingdom does not revolve around those kinds of things. Instead, an obsession with worldly concerns over spiritual concerns is always a dead end. This is why Jesus says elsewhere, what profits a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? What does it matter then if Pilate is a successful governor, uh, he rises through the Roman hierarchy, he serves at the right hand of the emperor himself, or he, he becomes emperor? What does all that matter when Jesus comes along and says, unless you believe that I am who I say I am, namely the king of the cosmos, unless you believe and receive that, you will die in your sins. So who cares if you've got a few decades of wealth and accolades and political power and worldly pleasures and success if it gives way to a few trillion decades in hell and beyond. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. (laughs) Jesus just won't stop. He won't stop pressing. He won't stop digging. He won't stop challenging Pilate and putting Pilate on the hot seat. As much as Pilate wants to keep hitting the ball into somebody else's court, Jesus keeps hitting it right back to Pilate. And could there be a more incredible statement that Jesus makes here in this conversation? Everyone who's on the side of truth listens to me. I'm right, and everyone who disagrees with me is automatically wrong. People talk like that, and we declare them insane. But this is how Jesus talks. And here, Jesus does begin to sound like a king, doesn't he? But this is a king whose arm, whose reach, extends farther than any worldly emperor. Jesus expects total allegiance from all who are on the side of the truth. Now, Either Jesus is completely unhinged mentally, or he's really pulling a fast one on Pilate and lying through his teeth, or he's for real. And so Jesus turns the tables, 
And it is Pilate who is on trial. It is Pilate who is in the dock. Indeed, friends, the whole world is on trial. And what we decide about Jesus determines His verdict on us. Maybe you're here this morning and you are undecided about Jesus. Maybe you're like many people. You have, you have a sort of respect for Jesus. You certainly think He's a good moral teacher and a wonderful example for us to follow, but you're not quite so sold on this business of Him being King of the universe. That's a little extreme. But He said some other good things. But here's the problem. Jesus leaves you no room to have a wishy-washy attitude about Him precisely because of His claims of complete kingship and His demands that you surrender to it. If He is not who He says He is, do not respect Jesus. If He is not who He says He is, do not think that He is a good moral teacher. If Jesus is not telling the truth about all of this, He is either completely whacked out of His mind insane, or He is the biggest con artist and the most evil man in the history of the world, He is, as C.S. Lewis said, either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. And Pilate is left with a choice. What will he do about Jesus? What will he decide? What will you decide? Well, Pilate tries to avoid the decision with a cynical question in verse 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Pilate doesn't even wait for Jesus to answer the question. (laughs) After standing face to face with the one who claims to be the truth, Pilate now tries to sidestep the issue of the true identity of Jesus by just kind of throwing out that little question, turning around, and heading back outside. Verse 38, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Now, isn't that interesting? Now, if Pilate were a man of integrity and backbone, if he were not a career politician who was always holding his finger up to the wind to see where the wind of public sentiment was blowing, he would have released Jesus right away. He says it right here. We've got it on, on, on record. I find no guilt in him. But that's not what he does. He doesn't release Jesus. And notice, once again, Pilate tries to hit the ball to somebody else to let them decide about Jesus. And I'm sure he thinks he's being real clever here. Verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release you, the king of the Jews? Verse 40, they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate's ploy backfires, and guess what? Once again, he finds himself holding that ball that he's been trying to get rid of all morning long. The name Barabbas is a surname. It means son, son of a father, son of the father, something like that. We don't know what Barabbas' first name is, who that father was, but is it not interesting that the choice that Pilate is offering the people is between Jesus Christ, son of the father, or a nameless man, son of a father? What kind of kingdom do you want? A spiritual kingdom 
or worldly kingdom. And Barabbas was after a worldly kingdom. When you put all the Gospels together, you get a picture of who Barabbas is. Seems like he was an insurrectionist, he was a murderer, he was a rebel, he was an outlaw, he was a man who was working towards the violent overthrow of the Romans in Israel. He wanted to send the Romans packing, and he'd kill as many people as he had to, uh, to, to get them out of the way. So Pilate says now, who do you want? You want Jesus, an innocent man of God, or do you want Barabbas, a murderous man of the world? The people chose Barabbas. The religious elite will do everything they can to protect their kingdom of hypocrisy. And Pilate, wanting to pacify the people and not cause trouble for himself, will do everything possible to protect his kingdom of worldly concern, even if it means sending a man that he knows is innocent to his death. Is that not crazy? The verdict is innocent. The sentence, death. How twisted. When faced with a choice between Jesus, a man of God, or Barabbas, a man of the world, both Pilate and the crowd end up going with Barabbas. They choose the path that will get them what they want, which is to build their own little kingdom. And many people then and now choose Barabbas over Jesus. We can, we can criticize them in this story for the choice that they made while we spend all of our time trying to build up our bank accounts, all of our time trying to achieve popularity and applause, all, all the, our time trying to build a little kingdom of our own. And I fear that there may be a lot more of Barabbas in us than we'd be willing to admit. You know, in truth, there's really no difference between the kingdom of religious hypocrisy and the kingdom of worldly concern. It's really all worldly. (laughs) It's all about the here and now. It's all about elevating temporal concerns over Jesus. It's all about our goals, our desires, our priorities. It's all about us as opposed to the kingdom of Christ that revolves around His goals, His desires, His priorities, where it's all about Him. And when kingdoms come into conflict, we must make a choice Who do we want, Jesus or Barabbas, the kingdom of man or the kingdom of Christ? If Jesus is not your Lord, if you have elevated your own personal kingdom above His, if you have been an insurrectionist and a rebel against Him, know that the release of the guilty Barabbas at the expense of innocent Jesus dying in His place is a beautiful illustration of the gospel. Because Jesus went to the cross so that outlaws against God, rebels like you, could go free. Jesus died in the place of rebels so that rebels who deserve to die and deserve hell could be free from both. Jesus died for a world full of Barabbases. And all of your rebellion against Jesus the King can be forgiven if you would just believe and receive him, surrender your life to him, bend the knee to the king today and receive full pardon for all of your crimes against him and you will be part of his glorious and eternal kingdom forever. What an incredible, beautiful, merciful, loving, kind, gracious offer that is. You would be a fool to pass up on it. If you're here as a believer, you are probably a lot like me. You still struggle with the desire to build a personal little kingdom and elevate it above Jesus' kingdom. 
You may struggle with a hypocritical religious elitism that looks down on others and puffs you up. You may struggle with your life revolving around worldly concerns and interests and not around Christ. Even the best of Christians can struggle with these things, and we fight against these things on a regular basis. And every day we face a choice, don't we? And maybe lately you feel like you've been making the wrong choice, and you've been elevating your kingdom over His. My word of encouragement for you, Christian brother, Christian sister, is to remind you that your salvation does not hinge on your ability to successfully be a loyal subject to the king. It doesn't rest on the faith, faithfulness, your faithfulness to the king. Instead, it hinges on the king's faithfulness to you. The king who shed his royal blood to rescue you from the kingdom of darkness and to bring you into his kingdom of light. And the price that he paid to get you into that kingdom is too high for him to let you go. So you don't have to condemn yourself for your failures. You you may cry out in frustration, I'm like Barabbas. And I would say to you, yes, you are like Barabbas. And Jesus suffered condemnation in your place so that you could be released and be free from that condemnation. Therefore, the Apostle Paul tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so my encouragement to you is to not walk in condemnation, but to walk in the freedom of a released prisoner. Walk in brokenness, yes. Walk in repentance, definitely. Walk in humility, absolutely, but not in condemnation. Never in condemnation, but instead in hopeful expectation. Because as we in repentance cast down our crowns, and as we give our hearts and lives to Jesus as King, and as we abandon the failing, doomed kingdom of self, we can be encouraged that He promises us a better kingdom. A kingdom, the Apostle Paul tells us, is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And the value of the kingdom of God is ultimately bound up in the value of the king, in Jesus. Having Jesus is better than temporary, empty accolades that come through religious hypocrisy. Having Jesus is better than the fleeting pleasures of this world here today, gone tomorrow, and they weren't as good as they had promised anyway. And so, may God pry our white-knuckled fingers open so we can let go of the kingdom of self so that we can enjoy something infinitely better in Christ. A kingdom and a king that outshines our little selfish kingdoms that will only fail in the end, a kingdom that is like treasure hidden in a field that a man finds, and in his joy, he sells all of his possessions so that he can buy that field so he can get the treasure. And so, Jesus says elsewhere, he says to you, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And may God turn our hearts more and more to that better kingdom and that better king. Let's pray.